Jordan's going to read to us from Luke 19, verses 28 through 40, to begin our teaching this morning. Luke 19, 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you this morning. Because as we read earlier, you have indeed opened to us the gates of righteousness. Through the work of the bloodstained cross, we have been made righteous in your eyes. You have become our salvation. And so we are able to enter into the gates of your kingdom and give you thanks as our Lord and King. This morning we thank you for hearing the cry of mankind. Your work of salvation is marvelous in our eyes, and so we gather this morning not to simply check a box or do what we do every Sunday in repetitive fashion. We gather because this day, one day in seven, the new day of life, the day of new creation, it is your day, and you alone have made it. Lord, you ordained it in creation, and you have made it new in salvation, so we thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving up your most precious son as the festal sacrifice bound to the altar of the cross. We give you thanks now and forever because your steadfast love endures forever. Let those in this body that are struggling with pain or sorrow or sickness be reminded of your love by the love they feel in this place and as we reach out to them. Please be with our brothers and sisters throughout the world that are marking the story of this Holy Week, which commemorates the final days before your son's death and resurrection. Please be with our leaders nationally and locally. And let this week be one of conviction that they might turn and be blessed by your way of wisdom and lead this country in obedience to you. Please help us this morning to point our eyes towards your kingdom. Please let our self-concern and the stresses of this world around us melt away in the amazing light of your gospel. Please help us to know of your steadfast love this morning as we read your word. And please bind our hearts, minds, emotions, and relationships to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do we carry and do the traditions that we do? Why do we cut both ends off the Easter ham? Does anyone know? The answer is so that it fits in the pan. That's literally the answer as to why you buy hams with both ends cut off of them. It's a tradition. It's what we used to do. Why do we celebrate Easter with lilies and flowers? Aren't those signs of fertility? Well, yeah, but they've been reclaimed by the idea of new life in Christ. Why do we do what we do? How often do we think about that? How many of us go through Easter and Christmas and really even our everyday lives and we just kind of do our thing, never thinking about why we do what we do? I can still remember the very first Ash Wednesday uh, assembly mass that I participated in when I started attending Catholic high school. Here I was, this self-proclaimed evangelical Protestant, but really a non-believer in pretty much every way. I was watching these people get ashes mixed with oil placed on their foreheads in the sign of a cross, and I thought, how odd. And I even asked one of them, 
what is this all about? As I get older and understood the meaning and understand the meaning behind Ash Wednesday and behind the season of penitence known as Lent that most Catholics and some Protestants celebrate, I begin to respect the reasoning behind it. And it matters to know why we do what we do. And if we know, then oftentimes we gain more reverence and more respect. And so it's a good question to ask. This morning, as we step back into Deuteronomy 16, this section that along with chapter 15 describes the holy rhythm of the Israelites and their their feasts that they celebrated. We're going to look at what's called the Feast of Weeks. And as with any of the festival practices, we're going to read through it and we're probably going to think, well, this text is great, it's interesting, kind of, but why do they do what they do? And so I want to answer that question this morning. I want to answer what these feasts are for. And on this Palm Sunday morning, I want to show you, first, what the festival was, Second, why it mattered to the Israelites. And third, how it was fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And this will hopefully get our hearts prepared in looking forward this Holy Week to celebrate Easter Sunday. And it will give us a context of why Good Friday, the day we celebrate Jesus' death, was seen by the disciples as so not good, and yet why it turned out to be the best day of all for unworthy, sinful humans like you and me. And so today, as we look at one feast, we're going to be looking at really our feast, the Feast of Easter that we'll be celebrating on Sunday, and really all that makes us Christians. So I want to show you this Feast of Weeks and help you understand why it made the Israelites rejoice in the Lord's provision. That's what we're going to be talking about today, is that we need to rejoice in the Lord's provision, and it's captured here in this feast. And so let's begin by reading Deuteronomy 16. In Deuteronomy 16, 9 through 12, we're going to see this Feast of Weeks. It says in Deuteronomy 16.9, You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. And you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. What we see here first is that we need to understand the Feast of Weeks because it can be a little bit confusing. The first thing we're going to look at is simply understanding the Feast of Weeks, which is also called the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Harvest. And so it's natural and normal that when you're reading through the Old Testament, you're going to get pretty confused. How many of you have kind of given up on understanding the feasts as you read through the Old Testament? Anyone? A few of you? Yeah, it's kind of hard to understand. And so we're going to try and understand the Feast of Weeks, and we're going to break it down a little bit here. So let's take a look at the logistics of the Feast of Weeks because it's not just simply one day and it can be slightly confusing because of that. First, I want to show you Exodus 23.16. This is from Exodus 23.16. This is the first statement of the Feast of Weeks that's noted in the Bible. And so this is where God says to the Israelites through Moses, you shall keep the Feast of Harvest of the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field. This is the first naming and the initiation of the feast that is referred to here in Deuteronomy as the Feast of Weeks. Here in Exodus, though, it's called the Feast of Harvest, of the first fruits of your labor. It was to be a feast that was kicked off, if you will, by the giving of the tithe of the people's increase from the barley that they harvested. Now, this is so hard for us to understand. There are a few of you that get this, right? Those of you that are farmers or that work within, uh, within the garden in your home, you get this. It was news to me, even a few years ago, that there are different seasons of harvest. Why? Because I'm a city kid, and when I go to the store, it's there, right? You want barley? You go get barley. It's there year-round, right? But that's not how it works. Just go hang out with the caliphs for a little bit during blueberry season. I'm sure they would love the help in picking all the blueberries, and they will tell you that's not how harvesting works. And so we're not only removed by time and by geography, but we're removed by even understanding all this. Hopefully you are way smarter than me and you knew that long before your, you know, late 30s, but it's hard for us to get this. 
And so in the Jewish mentality, everything revolved around this idea of harvest. The feast commemorated the spring harvest in the beginning of it, and by the time of the second temple period, they added on to it that this was also the commemoration of when the Jews received the Torah from the mount uh, when Moses went up. And so from there, we start to break it down a little bit. We have this feast of first fruits at the beginning of it, at the beginning of the barley harvest, but it can get a bit more intense. Why don't you turn with me to Leviticus 23 in your Bible, just a little bit to the right, or excuse me, to the left from uh, Deuteronomy. A little bit to the left and go to Leviticus 23, and we're going to be there for a little bit. And Leviticus 23, verse 9, speaks of this feast of first fruits. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb a year old without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hin, and you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until the same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So in this festal calendar, we start out, with what we covered last week. We start out with Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then would be this Feast of first fruits, where the people would bring their first fruits of the tithe to the priest at the tabernacle or temple. And at this point, it would be a sheaf or a bundle of stalks that look kind of like this. Right? You guys have probably seen this driving out outside of Salem. right? And it was this combination tied of, of stalks of, of barley tied up together ready to be harvested and the, this is the earliest wheat harvest and the priest would take this and he would put his two hands under it and raise it up and down to show the offering to god so that it might be accepted and what this symbolized was that the people were commemorating that the land and all that it gave them was first and foremost the lord's they fully believed as we should too that everything is the Lord's first and foremost, and it does not get given to us to use until we've first acknowledged that it's the Lord's. This idea is very similar to why we pray before meals. This is not my food. It's been given to me by the provider. Therefore, I say, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, right? That's how you guys do it, right? You guys are good, honest Christians. No, we thank the Lord. And this is something that, quite honestly, as I progressed in Christianity, I started to get rid of like, oh, that's just ritual. It's rote tradition. We're not going to do it. And then I started to realize, wait a minute, we're diving into food thinking this is ours. Thinking that we are the ones that provided it by our supply chain. Aren't we amazing as humans? The reality is, is you get one big drought across the world and all of us, we're in deep, deep doo-doo. It's the Lord's first and foremost. It's also why we tithe. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that we give to the Lord first and foremost, and then it gets what's called desacralized or, or made ready for our use, made common for our use, because we first acknowledge the Lord as provider. It's something I think we need to recapture as Christians. As Protestants, I think it's often us first, then the Lord, because he's given us freedom. But the reality is, is it's the Lord's first and foremost, and he has graciously given it to us. From this day, then, the Israelite was to count forward seven full Sabbaths, or weeks. Thus, the name Shavuah is the name of this feast, and it was the feast of sevens, the feast of weeks. And it was during this time that there was, if you will, a holding of breath in the community. Because again, we don't know this. Our paychecks, most of us in this room, they come in on a regular basis. It doesn't matter if there's rain, if there's hail, what happens if there's a freeze, right? But those of you in the room that are in farming, that know the supply chain, you know that's a big deal. I remember years ago, one of the first memories I had was when there was a huge freeze. Uh, this was back in the 80s, right? So back in the dark ages. There was a huge freeze in Florida, and all the stores went out of what? Orange juice, right? No orange juice, we're going to die, right? But the people here, they would hold their breath because from the first barley harvest until the fullness of the harvest, they didn't know if hail was going to come and wipe out their crops. 
And so there was this massive sense of seeking the Lord, begging Him for mercy. They had given their first fruits, but they had seven weeks to wait. And so there was this sense, if you will, of a holding of breath and this penitence in turning to the Lord. And after this was completed on the 50th day, or the day after the seventh Sabbath, there would be a second offering of meal, a second offering of wheat. But this time, it would be combined with leaven and baked into loaves. And it's likewise uh, offered as first fruits, but this is a feast of new grain. And so it would be offered in two loaves of bread. Turn with me to uh, Leviticus 23.15. You should already be there in Leviticus 23. And look at verse 15. It says, You can, shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. And so guys, think with me for a second. If Friday to Saturday is the Sabbath for the Jews, what's the day after the Sabbath? It's a Sunday, okay? So this was celebrated on a Sunday. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd, and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering, and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits, as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest, and you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And so this is what was commonly referred to as the Feast of Weeks, but it became known as the Feast of Pentecost. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word for, for 50 is Pentecosti, right? And so Pentecost means 50 days later. So this is why we refer to it as Pentecost. But it's originally a Jewish festival. It's not a Pentecostal festival, as many Pentecostals would like to proclaim. It's a Jewish festival. To the Jewish people, this was a day of covenant renewal and a reporting, uh, or sorry, a repointing of their hearts toward the fact that Yahweh is their king and provider. And he is the one that provides them the food that brings them life. So now that you guys understand the logistics, you guys are well acquainted with it, right? All of you, you could repeat that all back to me, right? You're all good. Yes. I'm going to have you all teach a class on it next week. Now that you know this, we can look back at Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 16, and we can see the motivation, not just the logistics behind it, but let's look again at the motivation. Let's look at Deuteronomy 16.10. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall, what's that next word? Rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. You see, it was to be a time in which the community of Israel would gather together, and they would rejoice in God's goodness of provision for them, goodness of provision for salvation, for redemption, but also goodness of provision of everyday life, goodness of provision of bread. Goodness of provision of one another. All of these things were to be rejoiced in. And as part of this, notice that it was expected that not one person would go and do it or that they would isolate themselves in their house and do it, but they would gather as a community. And within their communities were the very people that these groups, this group was supposed to have been reaching out to, the oppressed of the society, the sojourner, the widow, the fatherless. Within this is the expectation of God that if Israel is being obedient to the feasts, they're also being obedient to the daily life, which is to reach out in justice and care to those that are the oppressed. The expectation is, is that, the, that the Jews were Jews not just in the feasts they kept, but in the very daily life that God asked them to live, a life full of love and justice and mercy. 
It was expected by God that Israel was going to be taking advantage of this festal system to celebrate God's goodness, but that they would also be obedient to the fact that they're called every day to righteousness and justice. As the highest form of provision, the author ends there with the fact that the Israelites were to be reminded that God had provided redemption for them from Egypt. He had saved them and made them his covenant people. And now he provided for their daily needs. You see, our God isn't just a God of redemption. He's a God of provision, and that redemption falls into that provision. And as we step into this Holy Week, it seems to me that we can look to this festal calendar of Israel to understand what our heart and our attitude during this Holy Week should be. One of rejoicing in the goodness of God's provision. Amen? One of rejoicing in His goodness. It's a week that we celebrate the fact that God saw us enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, to our own flesh, and to our rebellious desires to fight against God. We were slaves of the master of our own sin and the kingdom of darkness. It was in the midst of that enslavement that God reached his hand out and he grasped onto us and he acted on our behalf to bring us liberty so that we might enter into covenant relationship with him. He acted in his mercy to restore the covenant that we had broken. He is the merciful and the gracious God, the God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The same God that freed his people Israel has now worked salvation through his son Jesus Christ for you and for me. We can observe all the festivals we want, but if we do not recognize the significance of them and walk in rejoicing and gratitude to God, we will be missing the point of the festivals. We can have our egg hunts, and we can have our Cadbury eggs. Praise God for the provision of those. Amen? We can have all these things. And if we don't recognize that the whole point of celebrating together is to rejoice in the provision of God, we will miss out. Israel found themselves in a place like this where they were practicing the festivals, but they missed out on the entire point of them. They were religious, Isaiah says. They were great at practicing the festivals. They had a mark on their calendar and everyone wore their prettiest clothes and they made sure that they had really good Easter ham, right? They did a great job. But the Lord said, you've missed the whole point. You can reread the first chapter of Isaiah, for example. They, re- they missed the whole point. And this is still going on with the Jews today. I have Jewish friends that still practice these religiously and they miss the point of them as we'll look out at today. They're blinded to the truth of what the festivals speak towards and symbolize. Paul encountered a group of Jewish Christians in Galatia like this that were trying to reinstitute the Jewish festival. And so he rebuked the church in Galatia. This is from Galatians 4.10. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Notice the exclamation point. He's pointing this out as an issue, not as something good. And the people had become so concerned with the Jewish festal system that they didn't realize what it actually pointed towards in fulfillment. Years ago, we were at a church where about 30 people in this church grabbed on to the feasts and grabbed on to a number of Jewish rituals one day and they said, you know what, we're going to leave this church and start our own because you guys aren't paying enough attention to the festal system. They missed the entire point of what these festivals were pointing towards. Turn with me to Galatians 4 and we'll read the context of that comment from Paul. Look at Galatians in the New Testament. Galatians 4, starting in verse 1. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. If a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. 
I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. He says to them, guys, the whole point of everything in the Jewish calendar was the point to Jesus. And you now have Jesus and you're missing out on Jesus spending so much time trying to dot the I's and cross the T's of your festal sacrifice. And I see this at Christmas. I see this at Easter. Really kind of the two festivals, if you will, that are in evangelicalism. And man, we do blowout parties, but the whole time we're so stressed that we forget the very reason we're partying, the very reason we're rejoicing. It's not bad to party to celebrate. It is bad to forget the meaning and the reason for it. So many believers, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant, Evangelical, will walk through the days of this week as if there are boxes to check and nothing else. Or maybe you're one like me for most of my Christian walk that said, well, that's really for the Catholics. You know, even Easter is kind of an iffy thing. I'm just going to, this is a normal week. But guys, it's not a normal week. This is a week designated by the church for 2,000 years as a week to celebrate and focus on the holiness of God and what he has done in providing for us redemption. My dear brothers and sisters, listen again to these words. We were once enslaved to the elementary principles or spirits of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God, the God of creation, sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and as daughters. If that doesn't give you chills, I don't know what will. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. Do small children cry out, Daddy, to strangers? Not if there's a functional relationship in their home. They want their daddy. And there's a special relationship. And so the reality is, is God has given us the ability to cry out to the God that would destroy us for our sin and yet, we now can call him Father, loving Father, Dad. Dear church, is this cause for celebration? Is this cause for celebration? Is this cause for rejoicing this week? Amen it is. And so this morning, we start off this Holy Week with the message that God has indeed provided because he provided in Jesus. The second point you can write down this morning is that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and he is the bringing in of the harvest. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and he is the bringing in of the harvest. Jesus has initiated this work where we are now workers in the field harvesting the work that he has done. You see, when we look to these festivals, what we see is something so very important. The Jewish people were celebrating these in part to commemorate what God had already done for them. And many Jews today, that's what they focus on 100%. It's all about the past. But it's not unlike our communion, as we noted last week. It's not just about the past. It's got a flip side that it's also about the future. There is something else always balancing out that commemoration of the past in these feasts. There was a flip side of the coin to every festival that they had. And as time passed, the Jewish people found themselves deeply in need of God's intervention because they realized that Egypt had not been the problem. The problem was their own sinful hearts. Does this ever happen to you? Do you think to yourself, if I only change my external environment, then things will be perfect? Does that happen to any of you? Or am I the only sinner? If I get different relationships, then... If I go to a different church, then... If I go move to another country and become a missionary, then I'll finally be holy. And those missionaries burn out super fast. We always think that by changing the external, something will change our hearts. But the reality is, is that if you don't change the heart, you don't change the heart. We can try and change the external, and it might have a small impact. But the reality is, is it's the sinful heart that's the problem. And the Jews knew this. Their hearts of blatant disobedience and pervasive depravity kept them from walking in covenant relationship with the God that had saved them. And we Gentiles are no different as well. We do the same blatant disobedience and pervasive depravity. And so as time passed from one year to the next, the Bible tells us the narrative that the Jewish people drifted farther and farther from covenant faithfulness. 
and eventually found themselves in exile, away from the land that God had promised to them, locked again in chains, if you will. These festivals began to take on new meaning to them. They began to not only look backward, but they began to look forward, anticipating God's gracious work again, that he would once again redeem them from the hands of their oppressors, that he would provide salvation for them just as he had in Egypt. How many of you have seen Fiddler on the Roof? Anyone? Yeah. Next year in Jerusalem, they would say. They would celebrate Passover. They would celebrate the Sabbath. They would celebrate the Feast of Weeks. All of these pointing to the day when they could finally be back in their land in fullness of covenant with God. And these spring festivals spoke to the hope that God would once again provide a sacrifice that would pay the price of atonement for them that God's wrath would pass over them, that he would take the leaven out of their hearts and make them truly holy and set apart for his purposes, that he would cause them to rejoice in the fullness of his provision of redemption and victory over their enemies. And so they began praying and begging for a Messiah, begging for the one that the book of Isaiah says is the right hand of God acting on his behalf. And slowly as prophets spoke and scripture was written, this idea of an anointed one, a king, that would free them from their enemies, began to emerge. They began to look for the leader over which they could say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. This is the one that will save us. And they would cry out, Hosanna, save now. And then one day there were rumblings. People throughout Jerusalem began to hear of this country bumpkin, Rabbi, from up north in Galilee. What was his name again? Jesus, you say? That's a pretty common name. It's like Joshua, right? One who had healed people, you say? And he spoke with authority? This Jesus of Nazareth would show up on the scene and supposedly they heard he was rallying crowds of hundreds and of thousands and he was starting a movement. And maybe he was the Messiah that would rally the people against the Romans. And as people flocked to Jerusalem to the temple to celebrate the commanded festivals in the place where the Lord, name of the Lord dwelt, a large crowd started to gather and they wanted Jesus to be their Messiah. They wanted him to save them. And they would shout out, Hosanna, which means save us now. And they would lay their cloaks and palm branches down on the road he would ride in on. A sign of honor for a victorious king. And yet Jesus seemingly had done nothing yet against the Roman Empire. Turn with me to John chapter 12. Just a little bit to the left from Galatians there. John chapter 12. And look starting in verse 12. Jordan read earlier from Luke, the same section, and I'm going to read now to you from John, starting in verse 12 of chapter 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, taking directly from Psalm 118 that Julie read to us at the first. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. That section there is taken from the book of Zechariah. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This man, Jesus, had raised Lazarus from the dead. He literally had called him out of the tomb. Perhaps he could be the one to raise Israel from the clutches of the Roman oppressors. And so they laid palm branches down on that Sunday before his crucifixion. And he came not on a horse as a conquering king, but on a donkey a sign of a king that brings peace rather than warfare. And as Julie read earlier, the people cried out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But then just a few days later, Jesus was captured. He was beaten. He was spit upon. He was crowned with a crown of thorns. He was condemned and he was crucified. We will mourn this together on this Friday during our Good Friday service. His blood was given as the sacrifice so that the wrath of God might pass over those that gave their allegiance to this newly crowned king. Jesus became our Passover lamb. His death 
meant that he stood in the gap against the enemy of God and brought us as captives into his kingdom. Just as the Passover lamb had been slain to bring gracious protection to the Jews in Egypt, Jesus was given as our Passover lamb. Then he was taken off the cross after he had died and he was buried. The Bible says that during those three days, Jesus went to the abode of death and proclaimed victory over the kingdom of darkness. He initiated a new holy people set apart for his service. By his death, Jesus paid the penalty of our sin and placed upon us his own righteousness that we might be seen as spotless and pure in the eyes of the Holy Father God. He cleansed us of the leaven of our sin, made us unleavened. Paul spoke of this very act in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8. We read this last week. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8. He speaks of both Jesus being our Passover and Jesus' work taking away the leaven of our sin. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. On that third day after Jesus' death, something happened that was amazingly different, even different than Lazarus. You see, people had been raised from the dead before, like Lazarus. But on that first resurrection Sunday, Jesus resurrected, but his was different. You see, Lazarus and those resurrected by the prophets, each of those other people had only been resurrected to later die again. Can you imagine the bummer that that was? (laughs) Right? They were eventually consumed by the effects of their sinful state. It's as if Jesus said, Lazarus, don't get too comfortable. You're going to get wrapped in those things and put in that tomb again. But Jesus was different. He would resurrect never to die again. Jesus was to live eternally, and he does even today, seated at the right hand of the Father. And in this way, Jesus was the first harvest of the eventual resurrection of the righteous dead to eternal life. The resurrection spoken of by the prophets. He was the initial offering waved before the Father and fully accepted And there need be no anxiety on whether or not the fullness of the harvest should come because Jesus himself said, nothing will prevail against my church. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we can be assured that the eventual harvest will come to pass. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. The Bible is clear that there will be a resurrection of the dead, of the righteous dead who have been redeemed by Christ to eternal life, and of the unrighteous, those that like you and like me are pervasively depraved but refuse to give their allegiance to Jesus, they will be resurrected to eternal torment. The Bible is clear on that. And if you are a person that does not know Jesus, I would beg of you today, we have no idea when that resurrection will occur. You have no idea how many days you have left. Choose today to step into allegiance to Jesus Christ, to give your life to him and to his people, the church, so that you might be one with him, so that you might cry out, be redeemed and adopted as his child. Jesus was the first fruits of the harvest. Well, in the fullness of time, symbolized by the number seven in the seven Sabbaths or seven weeks, Jesus would bring about the initiation of the fullness of his harvest. For 40 days, Jesus walked the earth in his resurrected body, appearing to his disciples, showing them that he was indeed alive. And then he ascended from the Mount of Olives into heaven. This is a tough thing for any non-believer to explain because Jesus appeared to people who were willing to go to their death to proclaim it. And when he ascended from the Mount of Olives, he spoke to his disciples as he went that he would return for them in the same way that he left. 
And for the next 10 days, they began figuring out what life was like without Jesus present. They prayed together regularly over those 10 days. Acts 1 says that they chose lots to fill the vacant apostle position of Judas. And then 10 days after the ascension, on the 50th day since the Feast of the first fruits, the disciples were all together in one place. Can you remind me what that day was? The day after the seventh Sabbath, it was a Sunday. Being obedient Jews, trying to figure out their new faith in the Jewish Messiah, they were most likely gathered together to commemorate the fact that their Savior had died back on that Sunday prior, but they were also most likely gathered for the primary purpose of celebrating the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2 and take a look there. Acts chapter 2, just a little bit to the right of John. Now to reframe our Christian mindset, because we have uh, rightly so taken Pentecost and made it our own, I want to just read this to you in the way uh, that it is in the Greek, okay? When the day of the 50 arrived. When the day of the Feast of Weeks arrived. They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Why do I use the word language there? Because that's what glossia means. It means languages. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, his own tongue. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them telling in our own tongues, our own languages, the mighty works of God. You see, it was on this feast of Pentecost the Feast of Weeks, that the Jews would take part of the harvest from which the first fruits were raised. And they would combine it with leaven, a symbol of that which was unclean. And they would bake it together into bread that would be given to the Lord as an offering. No longer could you distinguish the wheat and the leaven. It had been combined into one. Do any of you, when you get bread, pick it apart to try and find the leaven and the wheat? Right? You can't. Why? Because it has become one. It has become one together to be offered to God, Jew and Gentile, common and uncommon. On that day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church and gave utterance of the gospel to the Jews from all over the known world. It was at that moment that the gospel began to spread from the Jews into all the world, from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And Gentiles, once considered unclean, once considered leavened by the Jews, pictured by the leaven, were now being brought into the people of God. Neither Jew nor Gentile, distinguishable amongst the people of God. One new loaf of bread. One people united in Christ. And so Paul could write to the church at Rome and he could tell them this truth. And we can see this in Romans 8.23. And not only the new creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Paul says in the one we just read from Galatians that we're already adopted, but this is the interesting place of being in the here but not yet. And this is why the Feast of Weeks can be confusing, but it so beautifully pictures what Jesus did. You have the Feast of the First Fruits. Jesus fully resurrected the first fruits of the resurrection. And yet, 50 days later, you have another piece of the harvest, but one that is not fully complete yet. So we are in the here but not yet, waiting for adoption, knowing that we are fully adopted, waiting for the fullness of the harvest, knowing that we have been harvested. James, the brother of Jesus, could refer to this church, the church in this same way. He says in James 1.18, of his, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You see, we are the first fruits of the resurrection. And we are calling more people to be given over to the Lord and the work of the Lord. 
All of these feasts picture the beautiful work of Christ. The work of the Father fulfilled in Christ. And because of this, we no longer keep these festivals knowing that they were all the while pointing to Jesus. This is what Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. I know I'm taking you all over Scripture, but it shows you how this narrative is played out. He says in Colossians 2, 16-17, to the church at Colossae, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to who? To Christ. And so these spring festivals perfectly capture the work of Jesus. And now we are part of the harvest. We are working as farmers, sowing the seed of the gospel, watering with discipleship, and reaping on behalf of our Lord. So we gather each and every Sunday. We gather to commemorate the primary feast of the Christian, to commemorate the death of our Savior Jesus as the sacrifice that atones for each of us and our sin against the holy and righteous God. Each Sunday we gather to celebrate the fact that Jesus was indeed victorious over that sin proven by the fact that his resurrection from the grave came three days later. And each Sunday we gather to rejoice in the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit upon his church. And each Sunday we gather to reaffirm our commitment to Christ to be workers in the field of this world, planting the gospel wherever we can and reaping the harvest of his disciples. The spring festivals of the Jewish people were not only to look back at the goodness of God, they were also pointing forward to the work of God's righteous right hand, the Messiah, and bringing redemption not just to the Jews, but to the whole world. And so on this, the Lord's Day, on this Palm Sunday, I want to remind us of God's gracious provision and of that original spirit of the Israelites on the Feast of Weeks with this one last point. Write this down. This Holy Week, I want to encourage us to rejoice in the Lord's gracious provision. Let us rejoice in the Lord's gracious provision. I don't care how you do it, whether it's spending even more eager time in your devotions, whether it's going over the teaching from today every morning, whether it's saying the Lord's Prayer, whether it's spending time in family devotions, whatever it is, spend this week as a week that is different a week that is more focused than ever before on the Lord. Turn back with me to Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy 16.10 Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and all your community. In that feast, the people gave a freewill offering response to the Lord as the Lord had blessed them. And then the people were to rejoice before the Lord. Church, do you realize that the Lord is not off in some distant place looking at us through binoculars? He is here by His very Spirit, by His very presence. He is here as He lives and dwells inside of each one of you, but He is greater than that. He does not take up abode just in your one individual heart. He lives inside the church and he dwells in the midst of the relationships of the church. And he is imminently here in the love we have for one another. He is imminently here when we go to the table of communion and partake. He is there standing beside you when you profess your sins to him, confess to one another. He is there to encourage you as you take a hug from a brother or sister. He is there welcoming you when you're welcomed by one another. The Lord is imminently amongst us and we are here to rejoice in the goodness of God for his provision of redemption, but his provision also of the church and of our daily lives. The word here, rejoice, it means simply to make merry, to make glad, to be full of joy. And I think often we as Christians, uh, sometimes we're a little bit melancholy just to be melancholy. I know I fall into that. It was so amazing We had our volunteer thank you, uh, our volunteer appreciation dinner. For those of you that weren't able to make it, thank you for what you do in serving this church. But it was so fun because so many people said afterwards to me, man, we got to do more stuff like that. It's nice just to have fun with one another. 
And I would agree, we're all so busy on Sundays doing our thing, trying to serve one another and get done with the day and go about our business to get ready for Monday. To move. It was nice to just sit with the people that were able to make it. And it was nice to rejoice together. And so for those of us that are here today, today is a day to rejoice. It's a day to rejoice in the goodness of our God. It's a day to welcome people into our community who are visitors. It's a day to pray that the Lord might bring more of the Levite, the widow, the fatherless, and the sojourner into our community. And it's a day to remember the goodness of God in bringing us redemption, not only out of the darkness of Egypt, but out of the darkness of our own souls and our enslavement to the kingdom of darkness. This morning, as we take time to sing and to worship, to pray for one another, to respond to God's goodness through tithes and offerings, a giving of our financial first fruits. As we take time this morning to give of the first fruits of our time for the week, recognize that Sunday is the first day, and so being here on Sunday morning is a giving of your first fruits of time to the Lord. As we do these things, let us rejoice and truly make melody in our hearts and with our voices to celebrate the goodness of our God. Church, you and I were dead in our trespasses and sin. But by the grace of God, Jesus has made us alive together with him. And we can look forward to a fullness of victory and unity with God that is to come at the last day, at the final trumpet, at the resurrection. Again, if you do not know Jesus today, I would beg of you to come talk with me in the back or talk with Patrick or Courtney. Talk with us and ask us what it is to be a disciple. If you're a person who you have been slowly moving forward in your devotion to Jesus and you're ready to submit your whole life over to him, come chat with us. But for those of us who are his people, walking in obedient submission to him, let's not spend this week simply going through the motions of yet another Easter holiday. But let's focus on Christ and what he has done for us. Let's spend the evening of Good Friday mourning the fact that God had to send his son to die for you and me so that we might be redeemed from the consequences of our sin. Let's rejoice on Sunday together, crying out in victorious triumph over the grave because of our Savior's resurrection. And this morning, let's celebrate together, rejoicing in the one who has come in the name of the Lord. Let's cry out to our God, Hosanna, save now, because marvelous in our eyes is the work of you, our King. Church, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen? Amen.